0: Good morning. Uh, Welcome to church. It's great to see you here this morning. Let's pray and then we'll get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God uh, of Psalm 139. We saw that last week, Lord, that you are the God who uh, knows everything about us, the God who uh, is everywhere, the God who made us and the God who loves us. Thank you that we see that as Jesus uh, died for us on the cross Lord, we ask, uh, though, now that as we look at Psalm 51, that you would change us, that you would challenge us, uh, that we would be transformed by your word. We pray that your spirit would convict us of our sin and, uh, yeah, that we would be, uh, that we would walk out today different people because of what you've done in our hearts. So help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two types of people uh, in this world. There are those who, when the fuel light comes on, there are those who immediately go to the petrol station and fill up. And then there are those of us who uh, see the fuel light come on but wait to the last possible minute. And then uh, as we kind of feel like our car is breaking down, we roll into the fuel, the petrol station and fill up. Uh, if you're the second type of person, uh, you'll know, as I know, that it always comes back to haunt us. So a couple of years ago, uh, I was driving my Blue Magna, and I'm kind of the second type of person there. I was driving my Blue Magna, if you remember that car. Uh, It was a beautiful car. Uh, The roof lining was caving in, so it was kind of like playing that parachute game as you were entering in the car. Every time that you entered in the car, the the windows uh, leaked every time it rained. The seals were broken, so there was puddles of water. It uh, cost a fortune to fill up each week, but it got me from A to B. It was a beautiful car. Anyway, one morning was running late for a haircut of all things, got into my car, put the key in the ignition, and the car didn't work. Now, you know when you're driving a 1998 uh, model like I was, you're basically waiting for this day to come. You're waiting for the day to come where your car won't start, and for me, it was this day. So I uh, signed up for RACQ on the phone, they came out uh, to, to uh, fix me up, I guess, to... Uh, service my car and it didn't take the guy long to realise that uh, or to realise what was wrong with my car and uh, so it didn't take him long to realise that oil wasn't the problem even though I couldn't remember the last time I put oil in the car it didn't take him long to realise either that uh, it wasn't that I hadn't got a service for as long as I can remember it, he quickly found the problem And it uh, it was that it just didn't have any fuel in it. And so he filled up the the fuel tank. He charged me, you know, what they do to to fill up the the fuel tank. And he left me with some just really great advice. He said to me, Ben, when the fuel light comes on, uh, go and get petrol. Now, now I know that, right, and took his advice. It hasn't happened again, but I, I know that's true right? When the fuel light comes on, it's not that I don't know that my car is telling me I need fuel. I know that. It's just it's just that I don't want to fill up my car. And, and I'm not alone on this. I know that there's people here today that have that same problem, right? Don't tell me that when you're running late for something and your light comes on, you instinctively want to go and get fuel. Don't tell me that when your light comes on and you're Coming home from work and all you want to do is get home that you're going to stop and get fuel. Like we're, we're all. We know what the fuel light means. It means that there's something wrong within our car, but yet yeah, we still do it. We still push it and eventually it does come back to haunt us. But see, all those lights on the dash, right? The lights on our car's dash. None of them ever feel good, right? The oil light, the fuel light, whatever other light there is, none of those lights feel good because normally it costs us something to fix the problem. Right, Fuel light, it's going to cost us to fill up with petrol. Uh, Oil light, it's going to cost us oil, or it's going to cost us, I don't know, maybe the engine's broken and so it's going to cost us. So all those lights, none of them make us feel good. None of them make us instinctively go, yes, that's a good thing, the light on my dash is on. But deep down we all know that they are good things. right? Those lights on our dash, they're good things because they come on to tell us that there's something wrong within the car. Something that if we don't get fixed, it's going to end worse than what it is at the moment. Now, as we meet together today, as we open up God's word and get into Psalm 51, what we're going to see is that Psalm 51 is kind of like the fuel light, right? What we're going to get is a warning that there's something within us that's deeply wrong, that if we don't, get, uh, if we don't go and get fixed, it's going to end worse than what it is at the moment. Now, like the fuel light, though, you can decide that you don't want to listen, that you're not going to go and stop. You can decide to keep traveling the road that you're traveling, but eventually it's going to end worse for you than it is right now. Or we can decide to fix the problem or get the problem fixed. And we can sit up and notice what we're about to say. And so if you have your Bibles there, have them open in Psalm 51. It all begins in verse 1, and we see David telling us the problem. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. What's the problem for David? Well, he says it nine times. He says it nine times. Either I am a sinner or I've transgressed. Or I've done evil nine times, right? As we're reading this, we get it, David. You're a sinner, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, I am deeply sinful. But what has caused him to say that he's such a sinner? Nine times. What has caused him to say this? Well, it's in the inscription. If you uh, see just before verse one in Psalm 51, it says, this is what the psalm is. It says it's for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came To him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Right, so this psalm is not a psalm of like a great teacher teaching his students how to pray. This is a psalm from the king of Israel who has royally stuffed up, and here he is. This is the outflow of what he's done. This is the overflow of what he's just done, of what he's realized what he's done. And he says, I am deeply sinful because, as it says there, he has committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, this story of what David does, it happens in 2 Samuel 11. You might have heard it before, but but even if you haven't, it's worth looking at because this story is brutal, right? It is a brutal example of what sin is, of the destructive nature of sin and how bad sin really is at the heart. What, What David's done, right? The king of Israel's done, of how he's abused his... Power. And if you know the story, so in 2 Samuel, David is the anointed king, right? And he got there because God put him there, right? So he has, he has power, he has authority because God has given that to him. Remember the story, like he defeated Goliath. He got to the point where God got him to the place of king. And in 2 Samuel, what we see is that David, although not the greatest king ever, Still stuffs up in many ways. What we see, though, is that God gives David victory after victory on the battlefront. So he's doing pretty good, right? But as 2 Samuel uh, 11 begins, what we see is that it's springtime. And for whatever reason, in springtime, the kings would go off to war. But David, for whatever reason, decides that he doesn't want to go to war. David decides that he's not going to go, and so he sends someone else. First strike against David, he he sends someone else to go and do his job. While David's at home, he goes up onto his roof. And when he's on his roof, he sees a woman taking a bath. And and our Bible tells us that this woman is beautiful. This woman is Bathsheba. Now, where's Bathsheba's husband? Well, Uriah, her husband, is off to war. He's where David should be. Right, But David, on top of his roof, he sees Bathsheba, he desires her, and he takes her. It's the same words used to describe what Eve does in Genesis 3. When Eve sees the fruit, she desires the fruit, and she takes it. David sees Bathsheba, he desires her, and he takes her. He gets her brought to his house. He abuses his power by getting her brought to his house, and he sleeps with her. Right? The king of Israel shouldn't be doing this. He's abusing his power. He's falling short. He should be off to war. But here he is sleeping with another man's wife. Okay? And, and Bathsheba falls pregnant. Right? So not only has David destroyed a family unit. In Bathsheba and Uriah. Now Bathsheba is pregnant. So what's David going to do? What choices does he have to do? Does he come clean to Uriah? Does he say what he's done? Confess what he's done? Is that where Psalm 51 comes into it? Well, no. David's plan A is to get Uriah back and get him to sleep with Bathsheba so he thinks it's his kid. Right. So David orders Uriah to come back from war. And Uriah he says to Uriah, go home, sleep with your wife enjoy it. But Uriah says, there's no way I'm going to enjoy my wife while my brothers are off to war. So Uriah stays, he sleeps outside for the night. So plan A fails for David. What's plan B? Well, David thinks if plan A doesn't work when Uriah is sober, let's get him drunk. So David gets Uriah drunk and tries to make plan A happen again through him now being drunk. But Uriah still stands strong. He doesn't go and enjoy his wife while his brothers are out to war. So plan A fails, plan B fails. So what does David do next? Plan C, right? And, And I feel like whenever we get to plan C, often that's not a good sign in the first place. But David then does the unthinkable. David gets Uriah sent off to war and says, When you go into a place where you know that the enemy is strong, leave him, abandon him so that he dies. This is the king's order. The king God has put here. This is his order. And so it's the equivalent of putting him on the door of ISIS, knocking on the door and leaving him, running away. This is what has happened. And so Uriah dies along with a couple of other guys, all because of David's selfish ambition, all because of what he wanted and what he's done. Right. It's a horrible example of sin. It's disgusting what he's done. He has broken a family unit. But this is how the chapter finishes in 2 Samuel 11. This is how the chapter finishes. This is what it says from verse 26 When Uriah's wife, that's Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Right, so again, David abuses his power, gets Bathsheba brought to his house, and becomes one of his many wives. Right, I don't know how your marriage began, but I hope it wasn't like this. Right, but this is how their marriage began. Bathsheba is brought to his, I, I mean, I couldn't even imagine, right, if you were Bathsheba in that moment. How you would feel to this guy who's just broken your family unit, had your husband killed, and now you've got to be his wife. Right, but how does the chapter finish? Well, the chapter finishes in a way that it it gives us a clear uh, understanding of what God's feeling in all this. The chapter finishes, chapter 2 Samuel 11 finishes with the fact that the thing David had done had displeased the Lord. Of course it had. Right? Of course what David had done had displeased the Lord. It's horrible. It's disgusting. It's terrible. Right? And we should all feel that way. We should all be unhappy with what David's done. Like, think about it today. Morally, think about what we would see, what we would feel today. If we got to... If we uh, went to the shops tomorrow, got a newspaper and read on the front that someone in authority had abused their power, had destroyed a family unit, had the husband murdered, right, we would feel outraged. We would feel disgusted at what David's done, right? David has sinned. He has displeased God. His sin is disgusting. Now, as 2 Samuel 12 comes along, and I think part of the problem here is too, David doesn't even realize what he's done. He doesn't even understand. He doesn't see what he's done. 2 Samuel 12 rolls on and God sends Nathan a prophet to show David what he's done. And, and have a read of it. It's great. Um, it's a great story, really. And, and Nathan tells him this little parable. And then all of a sudden, David's eyes are opened. Right? He sees what he's done. He realises how he's sinned, how he's fallen short, exactly what he's done. He must feel sick to the stomach because all of a sudden he realises what he's done. And what we see at that point is Psalm 51. right? That's when David has written Psalm 51. That's what we see, Psalm 51. And how does David respond when his eyes are open? He says, I am deeply sinful. He says, I was sinful from birth. I am a sinner. It is in my blood. And that's why I sin. Right? David realizes his sin and he's convicted to the core. He realizes what he's done. And he cries out to God. Right? He realizes that his sin is disgusting. It has displeased the Lord. And as we read it, we should be disgusted with his sin as well. Nothing in us should be happy with his sin. We should all feel disgusted with what David has done. But here's my problem, right? Here's my problem when I see David's sin. When I read about David's sin in 2 Samuel 11, when I see what he says in Psalm 51, I am disgusted by what he's done. What he's done is horrible, right? It's terrible. I am disgusted by his sin. But my problem is while I find it easy to be disgusted with other people's sin, David's or anyone else's sin, I find it easy to look at what people do and think, you're, you're crazy for doing that. That's sinful. It's wrong. It's disgusting. The problem I have, I find it easy to do that, but I'm not disgusted with my own sin. I don't hate my own sin. And so because I hate what other people do, I do it myself. So I, I'm a hypocrite. I do the thing I hate. Right? It's kind of like what happens when I hang out with people and they sit on their phones. Like, I I know you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, There's videos going around on social media at the moment where people make these videos saying, you know, we're wasting our lives by, uh, we're wasting time in our lives by spending, you know, all our time on our phones. We're missing key opportunities and all that. Right? Good videos. I I actually think what they're saying is kind of right. But, But regardless of that, I hate when I'm hanging out with people and... Uh, Maybe I haven't seen them for a while. And and you know this, like maybe it's your husband or wife. You haven't connected much lately. You haven't really had a good conversation lately. You're hanging out with them. And then all of a sudden, they're just like sitting on their phone, scrolling through. I hate when that happens. Like I know Facebook's interesting, but surely it can wait. Surely you can wait to find out what's going on in the rest of the world while I'm here with you. But my problem is with that is that I do that. Right, I could guarantee almost that you've had a conversation with me where I've sat on Facebook looking at just random things. I could almost guarantee that you've been there where I do that. See, that my problem is I do the thing that I hate. I hate David's sin. When I read that story and see what he does with Bathsheba, I hate it. It's disgusting. But my problem is I too am a sinner. Jesus in the New Testament, on the Sermon on the Mount, when he comes along, he says something um, amazing. He, he, He comes along and he says, you've heard that murder is bad, but I tell you, even if you hate your brother in your heart, you are a murderer. Jesus says, you've heard that adultery is bad, but I tell you, if you lust in your heart, you are an adulterer. And what Jesus is getting at, and he goes on and on and on, and what he's getting at in that moment is saying, if you're not 100% perfect, you are 100% imperfect, right? If you don't completely, if you are not holy and perfect all the time, every day, you are 100% imperfect. And because of that, you deserve death, right? A holy God, you have offended a holy God, but see, because we're not a hundred percent perfect, because we're sinners and we're imperfect, we too abuse what God has given us, like David did. Right? David was given the position of king. He was or he was the authority. He had authority. He had power to do what he wanted. But he abused that. But here's the thing: I do that too all the time. Right? God has given me money, and yet there's times where I don't spend my money how I should. God has given me. Uh, time, but there's times where I'm lazy and I abuse the gift that God's given me. But that but happens over and over again. I am deeply sinful, right? I, I am deeply sinful. I was born sinful, and that's why I sin. And, and so David's sin is disgusting, but so is mine. And I have offended a holy and perfect God. And because of that, I, I deserve the consequences of sin. I'd see the consequences of sin, what what sin does when it entered the world, when it enters the world, sin breaks everything. So as we saw last week, uh, we are made in the image of God for relationships with God and others. But what sin does is it breaks that. It breaks our relationship with the God of the universe. It breaks it. It breaks our relationships with others. We say horrible things to the people that we love. It breaks our relationships with others. And ultimately, sin will break us. Ultimately, sin will break us and we will die because of our sin. We will face eternal punishment because we have offended a holy God. As David offended a holy God. Right, so, so what hope do we have? What hope do we have when we have offended a holy and perfect God and we deserve everything, we deserve hell? What happens in that? What hope do we have in that? What does David say? What does David say when he realizes that he is sinful and he has offended a holy God as I am sinful and have offended a holy God? Verse 7, David says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me. Well, David's only hope is if God does something, right? David's getting at here that he can't do anything. His only hope is if God does something. And so he pleads to God. Verse 7, he's saying, God, make me clean. Make me, wash me white. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Verse 8, he says, God, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Verse 9, blot out my iniquity. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. Verse 11, don't cast me from your spirit or take your Holy Spirit from me. And, and just a side note here. Like, so what he's saying here is he's scared of what happened to Saul, the previous king. right? To what God's Spirit left Saul. But for us today, the Holy Spirit won't leave us when we put our trust in Jesus. Okay, but he's pleading with God. He's saying, don't do this. Verse 12, he's saying to God, restore to me the joy of salvation. And what David's getting at in these verses is that he can't save himself. He needs God. He needs God to step in. So how is God going to do this? Well, the only way that God can do any of this is if verse 9 happens. Right. So if you have your your Bibles there, verse nine, the only way any of this can happen is if verse nine happens where David says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Now he knows who he's talking to here, right? He's talking to the God of Psalm 139. And David wrote that Psalm. David in Psalm 139, which we saw last week said, if I go up, you're there. If I go down, you're there. If I go east or west, you're there. He's he saying God is everywhere. And yet here he's saying, hide your face from my sins. Right, right. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Turn a blind eye, God. Right. Turn a blind eye and get the white out and just kind of white out all the bad stuff that I've, done, that I've done. It is a ridiculous request. It's a crazy request. Right. So it would be like today if we saw that in a courtroom. Um, so Elizabeth and I have been watching "Making a Murderer." It's a ten-part documentary series um, about this guy called Stephen Avery. Now it doesn't matter if you've seen it or not, um, but but interestingly enough, Stephen Avery was uh, put in jail for nineteen years for a crime he didn't commit. Okay, and then when he got released, there was a a, a years gap. He was convicted. Um, he was. Uh, ...put on trial for murder again, okay? And I'm not going to spoil the story. But let's pretend for a minute that Stephen Avery is 100% guilty. He said, he's confessed that he's guilty and all the evidence points out that he's guilty. Right, let's pretend like that for a second. And when Stephen Avery gets up on trial and and gets up, like he gets asked on trial... ...and he says, yeah, I'm guilty. And they look at him and go, so what do you want us to do? And he says to them, this guilty man who has murdered uh, another person, murdered this woman says, could you just kind of, I don't know, could you just forget that I did it, right? Could you just, just grab the white out and just white out over the fact that I did, just kind of forget that I did it, right? And then if they did it, there would be an outroar, right? It would be unjust, injustice would have happened. And and see, this is the reality, right? If Stephen Avery got off because he said, turn a blind eye, the whole world would be in an uproar. But this is what David is saying to God, to the holy, perfect God. He's saying to God, hide your face from my sin. He's saying to God, blot out my iniquity. How could God possibly do that? Right. If God is perfect, if God is holy, how could God possibly answer David's crazy request? But see, here's the other problem. David's crazy request is is our only hope. Right. We don't have a hope besides this. David's crazy and outrageous request is our only hope. We we can only pray this too. So what does God do? What does God do when he gets this outrageous request? Well, what can he do? The way I see it, he can either make David pay and make us pay, or he can absorb the cost. So since we're talking about my blue Mitsubishi Magna, What a beautiful car it was. Since we're talking about that today, uh, around the time I broke down, um, I was going to, I went to another church at night, and maybe that's why it happened. But I don't know, maybe not. Anyway, uh, I was going, and uh, another car sort of parked my car, and another car reversed into me. He knew it was his fault. We got out, uh, had a look at the, had a look at the damage, and he gave me his number and said, "Look, go and find out." Um, you know, how much that'll cost. Send me the bill and, um, you know, get back to me. So anyway, he gives me his number and uh, he drives off. Now it's at that point, I have two options there with what I can do. Okay. I can either, my first option, I can either say to him, okay, you have to pay, you have wronged me. And so you need to pay for what you've done. Or I can forgive him. But if I forgive him, it's not free. I have to absorb the cost. I have to pay for what he's done, right? It doesn't just go away because I forgive him. I have to pay the price for what he's done. So I can either make him pay or absorb the cost. It just so happened that I looked at the rest of my car with things everywhere and thought, ah, you know, I'm not going to deal with that. But you see, they're my options. I can either make him pay or I can absorb the cost. Now, Tim Keller in The Reason for God, uh, a book of his talks about how when we're wronged, we can either make people pay or we can forgive them. When we make them pay, it's this vicious cycle. You know, we can make them pay. We can, uh, we can say mean things to them. We can pull them down. We can damage their reputation. Uh, but it's a vicious cycle that just, you know, goes from bad to worse and just keeps going. Or we can forgive them. But if we f- But if we forgive them, it's not just free. It hurts. We have to absorb the cost. This is what he says. Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It's a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation and opportunity, but now you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt. Taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. When God sees our sin, the sin that we have we have offended a holy and perfect God. When God sees our sin, he has two options. Either he can make us pay. He can make us pay. We can go, we can suffer an eternity in hell, and that would be perfectly just if God made us pay for what we've done. That would be. He would be, as David says in verse four, he would be justified to judge us in that way. God can make us pay, or God can forgive us. But if He forgives us, He's not just turning a blind eye. He's not just ignoring, getting the white out out, crossing it out. If God's going to forgive us, He has to suffer. He has to absorb the, death, the, 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 the debt. He has to suffer. And so God entered the world in Jesus to suffer. God entered into the world to pay the price, to pay the debt. God entered into the world. He lived a perfect life, a completely innocent life where he didn't offend the Father once so that when he went to the cross, he could pay the price. He could pay the debt for others. He could forgive us, right? So, so here's the thing, right? When Jesus is hanging on the cross, when his bloodied body is broken, God is answering David's crazy request to hide his face from his sins. God is hiding his face. He's hiding his face from the sun. He's turning the face, he's turning his face away from Jesus so that he could hide his face from our sins. When Jesus is hanging on the cross with nails piercing his hands and his feet, God is answering David's crazy request to blot out his transgressions, but he's not just doing it with whiteout. He is blotting out transgressions with the blood of Jesus Christ. God is answering David's request at the cross when Jesus is left all alone to not to not leave him to not leave David, to not take his spirit from him. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price, to fix the problem of sin, to forgive people. And so here's the thing. When we trust in Jesus, the reality is, is that I am forgiven. The debt has been paid. Jesus paid. Jesus paid it all. David in Psalm 51, as he realizes God's forgiveness, he he doesn't get a clear picture of what it looks like. But as he sees God's forgiveness from verse 13 to 19, we see that he's changed by it. Right, verse 13, he says he'll go and teach sinners about his way. Verse 15, he says he will praise God. In verse 18 and 19, he's praying that the kingdom won't be affected by what he's done. He is changed by what God has done. He sees the warning He's affected by it and he's changed by it. As we meet here this morning, as we look at Psalm 51, as we see the warning light come on, what you do with that is up to you. right? With, when, when we think about it in our cars, what we do with our fuel light, when our fuel light comes on, the reality is, is that you don't have to listen to it. Right, you can keep travelling on the road that you're travelling. You don't need to stop somewhere, you don't need to find someone or go somewhere to fix the problem. You can keep going the way you want, the way you're on the road you're travelling if you want to. But we all know what's going to happen in that moment. It's not rocket science. Eventually our car will fall apart, eventually our car will break down and we will be stuck we will have nowhere to go and it will end far worse for us than if we turned somewhere to find someone to fix our problem. As we come here today, as we look at God's Word, what you do with this is up to you. You can keep travelling the road you're travelling. If you want to keep going the way that you're going, that's fine. right? It's up to you. It's your call. You've seen the warning light. If you're not going to take notice of this, then, then keep going the road that you're going, but know that it's going to end worse for you. And know that when it does, God will be justified to judge you. But if we stop and if we turn to someone who will fix the problem, Jesus will fix the problem. He's the only one who can and he will fix the problem. He will forgive us. But know that he doesn't forgive us just by turning a blind eye. He doesn't forgive us by just getting the white out or pulling the pages out. He fixes the problem by dying on the cross. He blots out our iniquity with his blood. And if we come to him, he is faithful. He will forgive us. Now, in a moment, we're going to do the Lord's Supper. And for some reason in history, in the past, in different churches along the way, the Lord's Supper has turned into a ritual. It's just something we do. It's just something we do to almost tick off the list. But God's not after that. God's never been after us just ticking off a list. And that's kind of what David's saying in verse 16 and 17. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. And then he says this, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so as the bread and the juice comes around, as we remember Jesus' bloodied, broken body, as we grab the the bread and the juice, and as we come to God broken, knowing that sin has broken everything, that that I've broken my relationship with God, that I've broken my relationship with others, that that I've even broken where I find my identity— I've been finding my identity in other people and in other things rather than in God, that I've broken everything, that I'm weak, that I'm sinful, that that I've fallen so far short of the the mark of the glory of God. As we come to God with, with laying that before him, the reality is, is that that broken heart, the contrite heart, God will not despise. And He will forgive us. And as we take the bread and the juice and remember what He's done, let's remember that He won't despise us, not because He turns His eye away from our sin, but because the the bread and the juice is symbolic. It's reminding us that His blood was shed for us. And then after that, what we're going to do is we're going to sing two songs. We're going to sing, Jesus paid it all. All What a great song. We can remember that Jesus paid the price. He paid the whole price. That sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And then we're going to sing How Deep the Father's Love, where we celebrate the fact that God did turn his face away, but not from us, from Jesus, so that he didn't have to turn his face away from us. But see, the challenge for us this morning is not that as we take the bread and the juice and celebrate what God has done, The challenge for us is not that as we do that or as we sing the songs that we're affected by what God has done. The challenge for us is what happens after we leave the the doors at the front of church. The challenge for us is taking this into our weeks, remembering what God has done for us. The challenge for us is waking up each morning, remembering that Jesus died so I could have life. The challenge is, as we go to bed each night, remembering that God has forgiven me, but not by turning his face, not by turning a blind eye, by dying on the cross and living every moment in between by knowing how good the gospel is, how good what God has done for us really is. That's the challenge. The challenge is what happens after we leave this room. And the prayer is, the hope is that we can hold on to the good news of the gospel long after we take the Lord's Supper, long after we sing these songs, that we can take the good news of the gospel into our lives and into our weeks. And as we see the warning sign, that we may be changed by what God has done for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you that you did not give us what we deserve but that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sin. Lord, we are deeply sinful and we have offended a holy and perfect God, but you are gracious and merciful and your your love is so big for us. We praise you that while we were sinners, Christ died. Help us, Lord, this week to remember that. Help us in our lives to remember that.